Hi everyone, welcome to Frankston Presbyterian Church online. Uh, it's great to have you join in again today. Well, let's begin our time together by hearing God's word call us to worship Him. I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 5 to 11. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Well, let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this day in which we can celebrate the exaltation of your Son. And we pray that we would do as we are meant to do, to bow before him, to worship him, to confess him as our Lord. And as we hear your word today, we pray that we would come with the humility of Christ, that we would listen, that we would obey you, cause our hearts to be open uh, to your word today. And if we are distracted, we pray that your spirit would draw us to yourself. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would apply uh, this word to us today in our own particular situation. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in a series in the book of Esther. And uh, the book of Esther, as we've been saying, is all about the hiddenness of God. Uh, even though God is never mentioned even once in the whole book, uh, his hand is implicitly present on every single page. And it's written that way to reflect the way that we encounter God uh, today, working in the world and working in our lives. Uh, God works through his unseen yet ever-present providence. And so the book of Esther is about the hiddenness of God, uh, but it's, it's also about the hiddenness of God in a hostile world. Uh, we live in a world that is in rebellion against God, and therefore it's a world that is hostile to God and also to his people. And sometimes that hostility can cause us to only want to practice our faith in private, to not tell people uh, that we are followers of the Lord Jesus. And yet the book of Esther, in a very subversive way, it persuades us to see that appearances aren't always what they seem. Uh, reminds us that the ones that we often do fear, those who are hostile, are not ultimately in control, that their power is not ultimate, and it persuades us to shift from the fear of hostility to the fear of the Lord. Uh, the beginning of wisdom uh, is the fear of the Lord. Uh, or another way to say that is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of true perception, to see things as they really are all under the control of the God who is invisible. So that's the book of Esther in a nutshell. Uh, today we're looking at chapters 5 to 7. And so I'll read through chapter 5 now, but we will follow the whole story uh, through these chapters in the sermon. Uh, so if you have a Bible, turn to Esther chapter 5. 
and let's hear from uh, God's word. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favour, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfil my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honoured him and how he had elevated him above, all, above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king uh, to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up reaching to the height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go to the king's, uh, with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the pole set up. This is God's word. Well, let's begin with a quick recap of the story. So we're in the Persian Empire in the 5th century before Christ. King Xerxes is ruler of the Persian Empire. And so far, the original queen has been thrown out and replaced by a new queen, uh, the young Jewish girl Esther. Mordecai, Esther's older cousin, who brought Esther up, has, he has saved the king from an assassination plot. And Haman, the prime minister has tricked the king into issuing an edict that allows anyone who hates the Jews to kill them on a set day and steal all their stuff. And so at this point in the story, the entire line of Abraham is under threat of annihilation. And Mordecai has begged Queen Esther to go to the king and to plead for the deliverance um, of her people. And so we left the story last week with... Uh, Esther calling for a three-day fast so that she could prepare herself to put her life on the line by going to the king and pleading for him to overturn the edict. Well, now we come to the next step in this uh, epic story. And uh, it's in chapters 5 to 7. 
And this section, it begins to resolve this predicament that the, the people of God are in. Uh, the full resolution doesn't come to the end of the book, but here we have the first step uh, in resolution, uh, the first step in the salvation of God's people, and it comes by way of the defeat of Haman, the defeat of the enemy of the Jews. And his defeat happens in three stages, uh, which we'll look at in these three chapters. So we can call these three stages pride, providence, and promotion. <clears throat> So let's look at these three stages in Haman's defeat. Uh, the first or the beginning of Haman's defeat is his pride, which can be seen in chapter five. So it starts off with Esther uh, going before the king, you know, putting her life on the line because you can't go to the king if you're not summoned or you'll be killed. But we breathe a sigh of relief because when the king sees Esther, he is pleased with her and he invites her to come in. And the king instantly asks her what her request is because it's obvious she has something very big on her mind. She wouldn't just barge into his presence like that uh, for, for just some small matter. And so he asks her, what is it you want? And Esther replies by inviting the king and Haman to a banquet that she has prepared. So they go off to the banquet. And then at the banquet, uh, the king asks again, what is your request? And she says, well, if you come to another banquet tomorrow, you and Haman, then I'll tell you um, what my request is. And so that's where it's sort of the story is left hanging there. But then Haman, we're actually told what Haman thinks about all of this. And this is a little bit unusual. You don't normally get this kind of insight into uh, what a person is thinking in Old Testament narrative. Normally you just have a record of their actions and yet in this section, we have a real insight into the way Haman's heart works. And so from verse 9, we're told that he goes home feeling absolutely happy uh, with himself because he got to go to this exclusive banquet with uh, the king and the queen. Now, I'm not sure if it ever occurred to him that in this case, two is company, but three is a crowd. But probably not, because the thing about Haman is that he loves being important. He, he just lives for status and prestige and, and the praise of others. And uh, Haman, we see, he's someone who is completely absorbed in himself. Haman is really a walking uh, case study on pride because everything about him, it just revolves around him. His life is at the center. And so... This invitation to a private banquet with the king and the queen, it really makes his day because it says to him, you are important. And that's what he lives for. But then in verse 10, he sees something that just makes his blood boil. He sees something that is a direct assault on his pride. He sees Mordecai. Mordecai is the only one in the whole kingdom who refuses to bow down and honor Haman, even though it was commanded by law. And you see, when you're so absorbed in yourself like Haman is, when you live for recognition, then there's nothing more exasperating than when someone or something robs you of that idol. And so Mordecai was enough to darken this bright sunny day for Haman, but he restrains himself at this point, And he, instead he goes home and he tries to resolve this dint to his ego by boasting. And so verse 11, he calls his wife and friends around 
And he goes on and on about how great he is. He, he boasts about his vast wealth, his uh, you know, great sons, his, this great position that he has. And uh, that's not all. Haman added in verse 12, I am the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. So all this boasting is to try to repair that dinted ego from seeing Mordecai. But it doesn't work. <laughs> the thing about uh, living for the praise of others, no matter how much you get, it's never enough. It always leaves an empty void. And you can actually see that here because the fact that Mordecai is robbing him, him of that, he, he says in verse 13, but all of this, you know, all this boasting, all of this gives me no satisfaction so long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. And so his wife comes up with this brilliant plan to, uh, that really appeals to Haman's pride. She says, why don't you build a, a pole like 23 metres high and um, ask the king for permission to hang Mordecai on it. Then you can go off to the banquet and, and actually enjoy yourself. And it seems like the height of the pole was to match the height of Haman's ego. And so this suggestion, it absolutely delighted him. And so he arranged to have that set up. But little did Haman realize that his pride was the beginning of his downfall. You know, Proverbs 18, uh, sorry, Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And so this is actually the first step in Haman's defeat. His own pride is the beginning of his undoing. That's the first step. The second step in Haman's defeat is what we call providence, God's providence. And at this point in the story, it really looks like it's an absolute disaster for Mordecai. I mean, Esther hasn't made her request yet. And by the time she does, well, that'll be too late for Mordecai because uh, Haman's planning to execute him in the morning and the banquet's going to be later on that day. So it looks like a disaster. But at the start of chapter six, something happens that neither Esther nor Mordecai could have ever brought about. It says in verse 1 that that night the king could not sleep. See, it just so happened that he couldn't get to sleep that night. And you know, if you really, if you really are struggling with sleep, sometimes it can help to put on a really dull movie because that's sure to send you to sleep. Well, the king does the 5th century equivalent of that uh, he, he asks someone to read him uh, the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign. And by now, there's been 12 years of his reign. So there's plenty to choose from. And uh, so you can imagine the um, servant there asking the king, you know, which volume would you like me to read? And the king probably said, it doesn't matter, just read me something. And so he takes out uh, this record and it just so happens to be the time that Mordecai saved the king from an assassination plot. And the king just so happens to be alert enough to ask the reader, what reward did we give him? And the reader has a look and he says, there's nothing. Now, that won't do. I mean, that makes the king look bad, not rewarding someone who saved his life. So something has to be done about that. Now, what we need to see here at the start of chapter 6 is that this sleepless night is probably the most significant turning point in the defeat of Haman. Uh, it, it would have seemed so insignificant at the time. 
Um, but it really is the monumental turning point of the salvation of God's people. You know, looking back, it would have seemed like a massive stroke of luck to the Jews. But we know from the rest of the Bible that there's no such thing as luck, only providence. God's providence. See, God's providence means that everything that happens is ultimately under his direction. And although God is never mentioned once in the book of Esther, his providence is front and center. It's across every page. And so these coincidences, they're recorded in this way to draw our attention to that, to draw our attention to God's invisible hand. I mean, you can see it here, but also earlier on, I mean, why is it that when Esther entered that throne room without being summoned, why is it that the king looked at her and was pleased with her? I mean, there could have been some pretty obvious reasons at the time. Maybe he was dazzled by her beauty. And when he saw her, he was just stunned and happily invited her in. Or why is it that he just so happens to not be able to sleep on this particular night? And again, there could be reasons. Um, maybe he ate too much at the banquet, drank too many coffees after the meal. Uh, and, and again, why is it that he got this particular record read out? And again, there could be reasons. Uh, maybe it was the latest edition written and he hadn't heard that one yet. But all of these coincidences stacked up like this, it just makes it obvious to us that there's something unhidden going on. That it's like Proverbs 21 verse 1 says that the king's heart is in the Lord's hand and he directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. In fact, at the end of chapter 6 that we'll get to in a moment, even Haman's friends and his wife seem to be able to sense that there is an invisible hand working against Haman. And so it's, it's very clever storytelling. This is a story in which the main character is never mentioned. <laughs> uh, and see, it's, it is so clever because that's exactly how we experience God today at work in the world. Uh, the same hidden hand is governing all things every little detail according to his plan of salvation for his people. And so that's what we call God's providence. So that's the second step. So Haman's pride, the first step to his defeat, God's providence working behind the scenes. The third and final step of Haman's defeat is a promotion. But it's not the promotion that Haman is expecting. See, by this time, it's morning, and so it really was a sleepless night for the king. And uh, King Xerxes, he's, he's sitting there wondering, well, what can we do for Mordecai? Remember, Xerxes, he's not good at making his own decisions. But he hears someone at the door. Who is it? It's Haman. And Haman walks in feeling very bright and chipper. Uh, he's come to ask the king to, um, if he can go grab Mordecai and execute him on that big pole. But before Haman can get any words out, the king asks Haman, uh, verse 6, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? And again, we get this very unique insight into the way Haman's heart works because he immediately assumes the king must be talking about him. And so in verse 6, Haman says, uh, what well says Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honour than me? <laughs> See, Haman, 
He's always thinking about himself. Uh, he's always thinking about how do I look? What are people thinking of me? How, he's always thinking about how he feels, how great he is. Every thought that he has revolves around himself. And so he cannot think of anyone else that the king would rather honor than him. And the reward that he suggests um, to the king is just as revealing. See, uh, look at verse 7. Uh, he answered the king, uh, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. So essentially, Haman wants the honor that is due the king. He wants to be in the king's position, having all the recognition that is due to the king. See, Haman's heart longs for the ultimate glory, the ultimate recognition, longs for the highest praise for others. I mean, he's he's essentially thinking, finally, I'm going to satisfy that void that all my life I've been trying to fill, that sense of being loved and respected, everyone thinking, that I'm as great as I think I am. Well, the king thinks this is a fantastic idea. And so he says to Haman, that's perfect. I want you to go and do all of that. Don't leave out any detail. Make sure you do it all for Mordecai the Jew. <laughs> for Mordecai. Can you imagine the shock that Haman must have felt at that time? The very one that he's come to execute is the one that he's now forced to promote, to proclaim that Mordecai's greatness. And so Haman, he goes off and does his duty. He has no choice. But he must have been dying a thousand deaths inside as he, every time he had to say, this is what is done to the man the king delights to honour about Mordecai. Well, once that humiliating exercise is over, Haman rushes home to whinge to his wife and friends. You know, he's thinking that they'll console him, but they only make it worse because they say uh, to, to Haman, since Mordecai before whom your downfall has started is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Now that right there sums up the point of these three chapters. See, it sounds like these uh, people have heard of the way that the God of Israel has worked in the past and they can sense that that is what is happening right in their midst with Haman. Uh, this is the beginning of the end of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Well, Haman is feeling absolutely wretched, but before he can do anything about it, there's a knock at the door. The servants are there. They quickly rush Haman off to the banquet that's ready. And uh, so Haman is there with uh, Queen Esther and King Xerxes. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, the king finally, after some coaxing, gets Esther to finally reveal her request. And she says in verse 3, Grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. Now, that is a massive shock for the king for Haman, for any of the servants in the room, because it turns out that the queen, 
who has been in that position for nine years now, it turns out that she is one of the Jews, one of the hated people, one who has the edict hanging over her for her death. You know, she says in verse four, for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. Now, the king's reaction is quite telling here. Uh, He seems to have no idea what's going on. I mean, he was the one who gave um, the approval for the edict in the first place, but he obviously didn't read the fine print. And he is absolutely stunned to think that someone would dare to do something to his queen. And, uh, and so he asks, who would dare do such a thing? And Esther calmly points across the table and she says in verse 6, an adversary and enemy, this vile Haman. Well, the king is furious. And so he walks out of the room to gather his thoughts and Haman, Haman is terror-struck before the queen. And so he falls down before her to beg for his life, which is pretty ironic because uh, all of this drama began because Mordecai refused to bow down before Haman. But now he's the one bowing down before a Jew. And the king, I mean, what's he going to do? The king, remember, he's all about keeping face. And in some ways, he's partly responsible for all of this because He's the one who made Haman prime minister. He's the one who gave approval for the edict, even though he didn't read it properly. Uh, So what's he going to do about this? Well, he turns around and he looks into the room and there's Haman falling down before the queen. And, you know, even though it's crazy to think that Haman would be doing anything wrong to the queen at this point, but the king, he looks at that and he conveniently sees it in the worst possible light. He, He interprets it as Haman inappropriately touching the queen. Anyway, in the king's mind, that's good enough to get rid of Haman. So he announces the death sentence. They cover Haman's head. And then verse 9, Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Now, this is such a satisfying story of justice. I mean, the very thing that Haman tried to do to Mordecai is the very thing that comes back on his own head. And it's just so satisfying to read uh, because it really does connect with that deep longing we all have for justice to be done, for evil to be punished. But this is merely one, albeit very striking example of the way all things will go in the world. Uh, That in the end, all evil will be turned on its head and all of it will only succeed so far as to promote the glory of God and the good of his people. Why? Because there's a God who rules over all things, even as as he is unseen. And ultimately, God will bring all evil to justice. That's what's seen in the downfall of wicked Haman. And so it's a gripping story, but how does it apply to us today? What, what, is this, what are these three chapters uh, saying to us uh, today? How do we apply it to our lives? Well, let's notice a warning and an assurance. A warning and an assurance. So first, a warning. Why would the author of the book of Esther go into so much detail about the way Haman's heart works? 
Why would, it, why would he continually tell us the inner thoughts of Haman? And part of the answer is that it makes for a gripping story. I mean, it's pretty funny to, to read, um, or when we hear Haman thinking, you know, who is there the king would rather honour than me? Um, <laughs> but you see, there's another reason this is emphasised. And it's because we are, by nature, just like Haman. We are, by nature, obsessed with ourselves. I mean, we think about ourselves all the time. You know, we think about our feelings, our circumstances, uh, how people treat us, whether we're getting the recognition we think we deserve. Uh, we think about whether things are going the way we would like, you know, whether we get to go first. You know, it's really the constant soundtrack of our lives. See, our lives revolve around ourselves, you know, like the earth revolves around the sun. We're like at the sun, at the centre of our own lives. And like Haman, our emotions are actually the warning light uh, that this is the case with us. You know, emotions are kind of like the gauges on your dashboard in the car. You know, the gauges tell you what's going on inside the engine. Well, that's like our emotions. They're the warning lights to tell us what's going on in our hearts. And so think of Haman's anger. You know, that that rage, that seething hatred that he has of Mordecai. And then think about Haman's joy and happiness over being invited to an exclusive banquet. See, seething anger, elated joy. They're both very different emotions, but they both point, they're both triggered by the very same heart issue, this self-absorption, this pride. And so if we look at our own anger, if we look at our own happiness. You know, what makes us extremely happy? What makes us extremely angry? Look at those things and they will point to you to a heart issue, a heart problem. Uh, we can see that Haman really is, in many ways, a picture of our own hearts. Just, just that Haman, his volume is turned up all the way to the max. And this is a warning because just like Haman's life came to a dramatic reversal in the end, so all of us, if we do not repent of our self-centeredness, the same thing will happen to us. The same dramatic reversal because the Bible says pride comes before destruction. And so what can we do about our pride? What can you do about your pride? You need to have your pride melted. You need to have your pride melted by the man the king delights to honour. You see, Haman... Uh, his pride was crushed when he had to lead Mordecai around proclaiming this is what is done to the man the king delights to honour. But see, that didn't change Haman. He still went home full of pride, full of bitterness, full of anger because things didn't go his way. But you see, there is another man that the king delights to honour, the true man, the God man that the king, the father delights to honour. See Philippians 2 verse 9 to 11. Uh, we read it at the start. It says that God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See Jesus, he is the one who humbled himself for our sakes and went to the cross to pay the penalty for our self-centeredness, for all of our pride, our, our self-centered sin. 
Jesus willingly went to the cross to pay for all of that. And he did that so that he could restore us to a right relationship with God, so that in our lives, God would be at the center. That's how we were designed to live. And that's what Jesus has come to restore. And so if you know that Jesus has done that for you, if you know that he humbled himself to the cross for you, then that actually humbles you. That, that actually melts your pride. And when you see Jesus' willingness to suffer the eternal wrath of God in your place, well, that's what stirs you to humbly live for God's honour rather than your own. And so don't be like Haman. See, Haman was forced to proclaim, this is the man the king delights to honour. And yet he refused to accept it. And do you know there will be many like that on the final day of reversal when Jesus comes in all of his glory. On that day, many will see him as he is and yet by then it will be too late. And so this is the warning. Haman is a warning against our self-centeredness. We need to repent of that and turn to Christ that he would be central in our lives. So that's the warning. But there's also an assurance here. And the assurance is, if we peek into the next um, chapter, chapter 8, it says that that same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the state of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Mordecai's estate." So here we see that not only is the enemy of God's people defeated, but the man the king delights to honour has been exalted to the right hand of the king. And so how good it must have been for all of God's people scattered throughout that empire to know that even though the sentence of death still hangs over them, that right at the centre of power is the man who represents them, someone who speaks in their defence, someone who rules for their good, See, by knowing that Mordecai is in that place of power, they could be certain that the ultimate defeat, the overturning of that sentence of death will finally come. And do you see that that's the assurance that we have even more fully in the Lord Jesus? Because Jesus has risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven and he is now seated at the right hand of God. And so with Jesus exalted, That future victory over evil, it's absolutely guaranteed because he is ruling and he's ruling for our good. And so we can rest securely in him. We can look forward to the day when all evil will be turned on its head, when God's people will be vindicated. Rest securely in him. He is the man the king delights to honour. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we praise you that the Lord Jesus, in his goodness and righteousness, is the man that you delight to honour. We thank you for his humility. We thank you that he would put aside any thought of his own, any thought of his own status or comfort or well-being, and that he would be willing to give himself so fully for us that he would even bear the penalty for our self-centeredness, for our sin on himself. Oh, what would drive Jesus to do, to do that for us, to, to give himself 
in that way. And we can see in Jesus that his heart was set on the glory of the Father. Uh, In Jesus, we see what true humility actually looks like. To not live for self, but to live in selfless love and service of others. And so, Lord, when we think of Jesus and and the way that he is, uh, when we look at our own lives, we realize that we fall so far short of your standard of righteousness. And we realize that in our own selfishness, we've got so much more in common with someone like Haman than we do with Jesus. And so we pray that you would forgive us of this, Father. Forgive us for all the ways in which we have acted out of self-interest, where we have only thought of ourselves rather than others, and where we have been so absorbed in ourselves that we haven't even thought about how our lives might be for your glory and for the good of others. And so we pray that you would not only forgive us, Father, but that you would cleanse us, that you would uh, restore us, and that you would enable us to begin afresh today to live for your glory and to live for the good of others, to be like Jesus in his uh, humility. Oh Lord, we pray for our church family. We pray that we would be a community that's shaped by the love of Christ. Uh, We pray that we would have that assurance that Christ is ruling, uh, that evil is defeated, and that uh, that all of it will be turned on its head when, when Jesus comes again. And so help us to serve you courageously in the world in the meantime. Uh, Help us to uh, be bold in telling others about Christ, that we would live publicly uh, for the Lord Jesus. And we pray that through that, that he would be uh, glorified among us. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's end with Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.